Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Hello, everyone. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners, with another episode of our Edge podcast. And today, uh, we're thrilled to have with us Dr. Chandu Viswaswaria, who's the President and Chief Executive Officer of Utopus Insights. And uh, he had actually led this company to a $100 million acquisition by uh, Vestas Wind Systems, uh, which was... Um, spun out of IBM just uh, 11 months after the spin-out, it was acquired by Vestas. But uh, Chandu has has an amazingly uh, accomplished career. He's uh, He was previously leading the, the worldwide smarter energy and environmental science team at IBM. Uh, he was named a fellow in 2013, which is, a, uh, which is a, the highest technical honor at IBM, one of only 92 IBM fellows out of over 400,000 people there. And, and before this, he was, a, he was a distinguished engineer in electronic design automation in the systems and technology group at IBM, uh, where he led the team responsible for correct signal timing in all of the IBM chips. Uh, he's in terms of his background. He joined IBM in 1989 uh, after getting his PhD in computer engineering at Carnegie Mellon. He's been a visiting faculty member at the Eindhoven University of Technology in the, in the Netherlands, uh, named Innovator of the Year by EDN Magazine in 2006. He's had numerous uh, IBM corporate awards. Uh, he's a fellow of the IEEE, a member of the IBM. Academy of Technology, a master innovator, over 100 publications, and uh, he's also a great guy. So, Shandu, it's, it's great to have you on the, on the podcast. Thank you, Ed, and I appreciate that introduction very much. <laughs> great. So, could you provide a bit of context about what has shaped your views of technology and and the energy markets in particular because that that that's been the area that you've been really most focused on over the last uh, last several years oh certainly ed so i spent 28 years of my professional life involved in chip design in the microelectronics field and as you know that is a domain that is largely governed by moore's law and Moore's law is largely a law of economics. It tells us the rate and pace at which you can manufacture circuits less expensively year over year. I was involved in about 10 generations of technology from 250 nanometer feature sizes down to 10 nanometer feature sizes. And, and that taught me a lot about trends and how economics are pretty much the only type of forces that bring about you know large-scale technology adoption uh, now that i'm in the energy space i see very similar trends we have uh, some pretty steep cost curves that are ongoing uh, with the levelized cost of energy from wind farms and solar farms rapidly reducing. And just a little bit behind that in time, we're starting to see cost curves in terms of battery storage as well. 
So energy is a very large domain. It's fundamental to our way of life. It is um, being disrupted by similar cost curves and economic forces uh, as we had in microelectronics over the last 30 years, but in some ways is very, very unique. It's a partially regulated space with a patchwork of regulations in different parts of the world. Uh, energy is a product that, for the most part, cannot be stored. It gets used, uh, electricity at least gets used the, the instant that it gets produced. Um, and it's also at the heart of an environmental imperative uh, to reduce carbon in, in our way of life. So um, it's all about economics and cost curves. Uh, at the end of the day, that's what causes mass adoption and huge shifts in technology. So it behooves us to read these tea leaves, uh, predict out to the future, and get ready for it. Yeah, when you were uh, first getting deep into uh, a- a- energy uh, I, on a personal level, uh, you, you shared that you had some experience in, in building a carbon-neutral home. What was, what was that like, and, and what did you learn from that experience? Well, that was one of the best learning experiences of my life. In uh, the year 2008, my wife and I decided to build a house uh, in Croton-on-Hudson, New York, not too far from the IBM laboratory. And uh, I decided that it would be a carbon-neutral home. And so we put uh, panels on the roof. Uh, We used heat pumps instead of a furnace. Uh, We invested in good insulation and efficient appliances and so on. And it was a huge uh, learning experience for me. um, And in fact, right now, we are going through uh, the process of adding additional solar panels as we electrify our transportation as well. But I learned a few important things from uh, this house project. And in fact, it was... Uh, I, I was bitten and smitten by the energy bug after building this house, and it, it changed the arc of my career, as you know. Uh, one of the things I learned is that um, um, you, you need additional capital to build a carbon-neutral home. You have to invest in things like heat pumps and solar panels and so on. But there is a payback, and you do get your money back over time. Um, I also learned that defecting from the grid is not a very practical option. You need to vastly oversize uh, your solar panels and add batteries if you're going to defect from the grid. Therefore, the interaction with the grid uh, turns out to be a key part of building a carbon-neutral home, um, and that was an interesting learning experience as well. But ultimately, it led me to the question, if I can go carbon neutral, what would it take for the rest of the world to achieve that as well? And that thought ended up uh, changing my career and changing the direction uh, of my subsequent work. So how did that uh, lead to the the creation of the the, the smarter energy group that that you had uh, uh, that you were really leading at, at at IBM? I mean, how did did you did you look at the energy markets and 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 really see opportunities there? 
Yes, absolutely. So once we built our house, um, energy was a hobby at that time. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. And the more I read about it, the more I felt that it was a space that was ready for some massive disruption uh, and a very, very interesting space for me to get involved. So um, within IBM, I um, decided to make a change. I was working at uh, IBM Fishkill at the time where all the microelectronic devices are fabricated. Um, I petitioned IBM to go back to IBM Research and started to run a smarter energy team in IBM, a fledgling team. The goal there was to work with energy companies and utilities and in partnership with them, co-innovate. Um, and what we were focusing on was energy analytics, the use of digital techniques uh, to help and to accelerate the transition uh, that was ongoing in the energy space. And uh, this Smarter Energy team grew in size and in importance. And um, at some point, as you explained in the, in the introduction, we spun out uh, of IBM as an independent company, as a startup, um, to build on uh, the energy analytics vision. Yeah, you made some uh, references, or you alluded earlier to how the the, mar the energy markets are different from, say, the traditional customers for information technology and uh you know as, as you started looking at the this market which is you know again whenever you develop a, t a technology there needs to be a you know a customer use case but uh you know could you could you characterize you know what you saw the opportunity in the markets and and some of the dynamics there and and how's that evolved over the past several years so when you look at the energy domain in a broader sense, it includes transportation and building, cooling, and heating. It is an enormous uh, worldwide market of the order of about $5 trillion annually. And this entire domain uh, was, in my mind, increasingly um, decarbonized, decentralized, and digitized, the three big Ds. Uh, decarbonized as an environmental imperative and in response to the aforementioned cost curves with wind and solar energy getting cheaper year over year. Decentralized in that we're moving away from large centralized power plants like nuclear and coal plants and instead you're going to have a solar farm here, a wind farm there, a battery bank in the neighborhood, uh, much more decentralized than before, and uh, digitized. And this was where my main interest was in applying energy analytics uh, to help this transformation uh, with uh, digital solutions. So let's talk for a moment about the digitization of the energy system. Uh, the energy system that we have consists of all kinds of equipment that is increasingly instrumented, intelligent, and interconnected. And so our wind turbines or our substations uh, increasingly have instrumentation that feed a torrent of data to us. In addition, we have exogenous or external data like weather or vegetation or social media data uh, that can also be helpful in orchestrating this whole energy system. Add to that 
uh, ubiquitous hardware that is increasingly inexpensive, add to that the advent of cloud computing, add to that the big data analytics techniques and breakthroughs that we've had in the last decade, and you get a, a powder keg that really is uh, capable of uh, exploding and, and creating tremendous value uh, for the energy market. So in, in, uh, at the heart of some of these seismic paradigm shifts that we're seeing in the energy space uh, is really the adoption of um, you know, clean energy. And when we talk about uh, clean energy, it seems inevitable to me that we're on a journey to achieving 100% clean energy for all of our energy needs. And, uh, but that means in turn that we are dependent on, for the most part, wind and solar energy. And therefore, we're at the mercy of the clouds and the winds and the sun uh, to get all of our energy. And so one of the grand challenges that we have is to deal with this varying or intermittent supply of energy. And I would argue that digitization has an extremely key role to play in solving this grand challenge. There's no doubt, uh, Chandu, I think we're, we're very much on the same page in, in that view of uh, the, the advent and potential uh, ability for clean energy essentially to, to displace most of the, the carbon-based fuels. Uh, first couple of uh, podcast guests that we had included Tony Seba from RethinkX and uh, Nick Gogarty, who founded uh, Solar uh, solar coin, and we, we're when you start looking at these cost curves, they really are quite compelling. But in uh, in contrast to pure cloud computing, where you're really dealing with uh, you know the declining cost of, of of processing and storage, and maybe you'll you'll throw in the uh, the availability of cheaper bandwidth for your traditional. Uh, as we like to think of connected industry or industrial IoT solutions in, in other areas like you know, manufacturing, uh, en- energy does have some, some unique technology challenges. Could you, could you talk about some of the, uh, some of the, hur- the hurdles or obstacles and, and uh, unique dimensions that are involved when you start applying information technology uh, to clean energy? Absolutely, Ed, and you're, you're correct in saying that the energy space is unique and poses some unique challenges. Uh, as I said before, I think we're on our way to creating a whole new operating system of energy, if you will. And I believe that uh, we need to think of a future in which Uh, When the sun is shining and the wind is blowing and energy is abundant, I will charge your car and I will preheat your home and I will charge batteries. And when energy is not abundant, we will discharge batteries and postpone the charging of your car. And when there's congestion problems, we will get ancillary services from wind and solar farms instead of just getting kilowatt hours. And so we need this sort of real-time component. When you look at the progress of IoT or the Internet of Things in various domains, 
It's often about maintaining assets better or saving money in some manner. And all of those apply to energy. But, but in the case of energy, digitization can do so much more. It can be at the heart of what keeps the system up and running and stable and reliable and inexpensive and clean. And these are exactly the attributes we want out of our future energy systems. I would posit that what we need going forward is a new kind of digital platform. It's a platform that needs to be both broad and deep. It's broad in the sense that it spans the gamut from generation all the way to the grid edge and beyond. And it's deep in the sense that it supports many kinds of analytics. In our company, Utopus Insights, we are building four families of analytics on a common platform. Uh, everything from descriptive analytics, where you get situational awareness and dashboarding, to predictive analytics, where you predict what's going to happen in the future, to prescriptive analytics, where you prescribe what needs to happen in order to use your equipment better or maintain it better all the way to real-time analytics where you're balancing the grid in real time using all of this data that's available. You need a platform that understands weather and weather forecasting very well. You need a platform that can deal with huge amounts of data and keep it secure and keep it organized in a common data model. You need a platform that can deal with uncertainty and optimize uh, for future outcomes in the face of uncertainty. This is the kind of push we need on digital tools to solve this grand challenge that we were talking about. Now, you, l let me pause there. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about the challenges of using the cloud, but we'll perhaps get to that a little bit later. Sure. Well, I actually, I wanted to follow up uh, a bit on your the discussion of the platform work that you're doing and uh, energy itself is has many dimensions to the you know, the assets and processes that are involved could you could you talk a bit about some of uh, some of the uh, uh, I'll call applications that that you focused on for instance when you're dealing with uh, physical assets like uh, solar panels and wind turbines, you have maintenance, but also optimization challenges. You want, you want to maximize the amount of energy that you, that you deliver from those assets and improve ROI. But on the flip side, there's also the, the transmission and distribution element, which is how do you get the power from where it's generated to ultimately where it's consumed and, and being able to maintain those, those assets at a very high degree of availability uh, is a lot, I mean, it's a lot different than, than trying to ensure that an, an email gets to, uh, gets to somebody at the other end of, a, uh, of an email server. Um, but could you, could you talk about some of the optimization and, um, uh, and, and process improvement applications that, that you have focused on in, you know, really across, that, across those spectrums of assets? Ed, I think we're on to a very, very important point here. 
Um, as we integrate more of this clean energy into our system, it's one thing if you have 5% or 10% renewable energy in your system. Uh, as it gets to a higher level of penetration, uh, we need to look beyond the fence of the wind farm or the solar farm to make sure that all of that energy gets integrated into the grid properly. So we need to worry about transmission, distribution, power quality, frequency support, voltage support, and so on. And so the paradigm is shifting from simply maximizing the number of kilowatt hours that you're able to sell to maximizing the value that you can provide to the grid, which is a subtly different thing. The second thing that we see happening is that some of the subsidies that, that occurred in the early part of the renewable revolution are starting to either diminish or go away. Things like power purchase agreements and production tax credits or PTCs are starting to phase out. As this happens, uh, first of all, there's even more of an emphasis on reducing the levelized cost of energy, or LCOE, and using every trick available at your disposal uh, to improve the economics. But secondly, if you do not have a power purchase agreement for a solar farm or a wind farm, then you're competing on the open market for energy just as a coal plant or a nuclear plant would. And at this time, it's important for us to recognize that although these renewable sources of energy are intermittent, it's not as though they are unpredictable. They are predictable, and advanced analytics techniques can be used to produce accurate forecasts and therefore bid that energy more effectively, reduce costs for the whole system, make sure that energy does not get curtailed because of um, congestion or other problems and provide maximum value from the solar farms and wind farms. Therefore, I agree with you that the challenge in the case of energy has its own twist. It's not simply better maintenance or better use of IoT data. It's this real-time component. Uh, and it's this predictive component where you look into the future and optimize uh, what, what you're going to do. And even within a single wind farm, for example, uh, there's tremendous work that we can do to minimize the wake from one turbine to another, optimize the tilt and the pitch and the yaw of each turbine to produce the maximum amount of energy. Combine this with our maintenance schedule so that we take turbines down only during a low wind period, or when we do take a turbine down, we change the way we control the surrounding turbines to get more energy. The, the number of use cases, uh, is, I mean, the sky's the limit in, in terms of applying these kinds of techniques. No, that's that's amazing because the uh, the the application of analytics, particularly around just pure you know pure op operational optimization, is uh, becomes so critical, right? Because you don't have a there's no input cost for wind or or or, or the sun. It's it, it really is it, you're, it's purely a capital cost. So uh, the analytics just plays such a uh, critical role here in in being able to to derive more value from from all these assets. Um, now, there's another aspect that's I think is also 
very important and uh, somewhat unique to the energy market, which is the the nature of the of the, the, the customers, the utilities, and dealing with uh, the requirements, local requirements, uh, regulatory mandates, etc., as well as uh, the characteristics of you know the organizational culture uh, in the customers. I mean, what? What are some of the, the challenges and uh, that that you've faced as a you know, certainly as a startup? You weren't a you weren't a uh, you weren't outside of IBM for for a long time, but you dealt with a lot of uh, early projects. And what would what are some of the characteristics of of successful projects? Yeah. So Ed. Um I will just point out that when we talk about the energy space, there's a regulated portion of it, which is typically transmission and distribution, and there's an unregulated side of it as well, which is typically both the generation portion at one end of the spectrum and the customer service portion at the other end of the spectrum. there's a lot of challenges working in the energy space. Uh, the regulatory framework tends to make utilities slow-moving and conservative and not prone to taking risks or encouraging innovation, but with notable examples of utilities that have been able to make some tremendous progress despite the regulatory environment. We have business models that are, in my mind, stopping us from making progress as fast as we need to. We have low R&D investment. Uh, We have uh, technical challenges to make progress in this space that I've been describing. Uh, You need skills in meteorology. You need skills in cloud computing. You need skills in deep data science. You need skills in power engineering and renewable energy science, that's a pretty daunting set of skills to assemble to tackle the kinds of problems that we're talking about. Uh, We also have an energy system that is very much siloed. Even if you look within the electricity system, we have generation, we have ISOs that typically run the market for energy and keep the reliability going. These are independent system operators. Then you have transmission, then distribution, then grid edge, and then you have companies that work behind the meter, like optimizing your building energy management, for example. These silos uh, need to break down at least to the extent that the individual silos start to exchange information on a real-time basis. And so the divisions between these silos need to get broken down to some extent in order for this grand vision to become a reality. And, and we also need to, as as a entire energy industry, start to think of data differently. Uh, data is gold. Data is valuable. And a lot of people think of it as a pain. It's inconsistent, it's dirty, it's incomplete, some sensors have gone bad, it's uh, just hogging space on some disk, there's no proper governance of it. We need to change our mind and get very purposeful and systematic about how we collect, curate, organize, and use this data. And finally, as long as we're talking about challenges, let me talk about cloud. 
So we've seen, at least in consumer computing, uh, the advent of cloud completely changing uh, a number of different um, industries. Uh, you, you see what Uber has done to transportation, you see what Airbnb has done to hospitality. Uh, it's, it's really cloud computing that has enabled these massive shifts. And this is inevitable, it's going to happen in energy as well. However, there are some important factors that are impeding our progress. Number one, most utilities like to capitalize their software investments and various arcane accounting rules keep them from capitalizing their cloud um, investments. Secondly, um, a, a lot of energy companies are afraid that their data will not be safe in the cloud. And while it's a legitimate fear, uh, many of them don't realize that it could perhaps be safer in the cloud if implemented properly than if it's done on-premises, which is subject to hacking and security breaches as well. And thirdly, cloud gives us a way to quickly, nimbly, in an agile manner, try new ideas, try new solutions, uh, and see if they work or not. Uh, this industry, however, suffers from death by pilotitis. We, uh, we do pilots all the time. Uh, they need to be free. Uh, they get implemented on premises, which takes a lot of cost and is not very agile. Um, and in the meanwhile, the most innovative software vendor companies uh, are unable to survive because of the very long sales cycles and huge pilots that we have to do. And cloud is a perfect solution to that problem as well. So just to kind of summarize, there's a lot of challenges, regulatory challenges, accounting challenges, business models, low R&D investment, building multidisciplinary challenges, breaking down silos, treating data with respect, getting cloud solutions to be adopted. But, you know, in some sense, that's what makes all of this fun. <laughs> it, it it is when you uh, when you untangle the, the really the the giant ball of string as it were or the or the big spaghetti tangle right it's uh, you know you you do find uh, you do find gems and gems of, of, of value and uh, you'd made a uh, a couple of references as well to the to the regulatory environment and and I know you've had an opportunity to speak with. Uh, you know, government leaders uh, you know, from time to time, and I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on you know, how you know, different uh, you know, di different governments are looking at the challenges of making this trans transition from existing legacy energy to, to clean energy, and uh, you know, what what can what are some of the things that that governments can do in a constructive way? beyond subsidies, which, as you mentioned, are, are going to be going away because, well, economically they may not be as necessary, but uh, are there, you know, are there some, some constructive uh, steps and, or, or programs that maybe you've seen or, or you think could be implemented that could really, uh, really could help the, this process of transition along? 
Yeah, great question. And uh, you're, you're right, I've been speaking to state legislatures, and in fact, in a couple of weeks, I will be speaking to the National Governors Association. And there is a lot that the government can do, both in terms of policy and in terms of programs to encourage progress in this space. Um, to me, we, we, it's a race against time. We have an environmental imperative. Uh, carbon in the atmosphere went up by two parts per million just in the last year alone, and we simply cannot afford for this to continue. So there's a timeliness that we all need to feel this sense of urgency to do things faster and move it in a, in a sensible direction. Uh, speaking of subsidies, uh, if at all we use subsidies, they need to be sensible subsidies. And there are uh, many subsidy designs today whereby the amount of subsidy automatically reduces as adoption rises. So there's a whole school of thought on how subsidies should be designed in order to incent the right kind of behavior for what we're trying to achieve. So even in, in the area of subsidies, there's a lot more that can be done. Um, secondly, um, there's the whole regulatory framework and, and the business models that we use. Uh, at its heart, the electricity system is something whereby we charge people per kilowatt hour. And we use that uh, not only to generate the energy, but also to transmit the energy and to maintain the grid and so on. Now, here we are, uh, there are people with solar panels that are not using kilowatt hours. So should they not pay for the grid? Well, as I said in my opening, they are dependent on the grid and should pay for it. So disaggregating the bill whereby you pay separately for energy versus upkeep of the grid, I think is important in order to incent the right behavior. And that is but one example of changing business models. Another is that a, a kilowatt that is saved is, is uh, what they call a megawatt or a negative watt, is, is the most valuable. And so energy efficiency is something we should all be uh, emphasizing. However, we're telling utilities you get to make money by selling kilowatt hours, please sell fewer kilowatt hours. So there are so many perversities in our policies and our business models, and as much as government can help us get those out of there and, and allow innovation and markets to just run at full steam ahead, uh, I think it would be uh, I think it would be super helpful. In terms of examples, Ed. Uh, we have been working for over five years uh, with Velco, Vermont Electric Power Company, and the entire Vermont system of 17 distribution utilities who are the collective owners of Velco. And in addition, part of that collaboration has included ISO New England, which is the independent system operator for five New England states. And in terms of breaking down silos, uh, working across ISO transmission and distribution to achieve um, some of our goals, in terms of working with forward-leaning um, utilities um, that, that are willing to adopt cloud solutions, that are willing to be agile and nimble and try new ideas, I think this is, this is just a great story in terms of how um, 
you know, uh, we can make great progress and apply innovations in, in a very practical manner. Um, and so, as, as I list all these problems, I don't want you to feel that this is an impossible hurdle. I think there are some fabulous examples of, uh, of uh, where we've been able to make tremendous progress. No, not not at all. I, I think the uh, the Velco example that you cited is is an amazing case of of a, uh, a really a, a, a unique or, uh, or organization or cooperative as as it, as, as it were that, that was able to save an enormous amount of money and the dimensions that you mentioned of the economic model for utilities I think are you know they they are challenging right because essentially to to make you know, to increase revenues, you have to sell more kilowatt hours, and the, the, the of course there are, there are price bands that that mandate rates, but uh, but reducing costs on the flip side is is also a an, an enormous uh, challenge for uh, utilities that have assets that are spread all over and and certainly uh, minimizing the you know the impact of extreme weather events which we've had uh well just a, a, you know a couple of them here in my my neighborhood we lost uh, lost power from a from a from an ice storm and in march and that's that is not not trivial so um you know how when you look at utilities you know what how should they think about this this coming transition in the modes of generation, and even you know, thinking about how the model changes from from being you know transmission and distribution, or maybe more of a hub and spoke to you know potentially even more of a, a distributed model. Are there are you know, are there are there arguments or you know ROI, ROI cases that that you think will be particularly compelling for you know for existing utilities to uh, to kind of jump on this train and, and be a bit more visionary than uh, uh, some of the laggards uh, compared to compared to Velco who you mentioned who was you know had was very much uh, at the cutting edge yeah, there's actually many examples, Ed. Uh, you see what happened recently in Brooklyn where they were able to uh, use distributed energy resources to uh, reduce investment in a whole new substation. Uh, you look at the um, sort of blockchain-based trading that's been started in Brooklyn. Uh, you look at some non-transmission alternatives that are being considered um, all over the country, but particularly in Vermont. Uh, building more transmission is not always the best solution to problems. Uh, you look at the efforts in the New York Rev and everything that's going on in California. So yes, there are many examples of initiatives towards this new energy future. And anytime you talk about the future, you have to talk about the millennials and Gen Z because this is for whom we're building the future. And they want to use cloud computing. They want answers to everything on their mobile devices. They fully understand the power of digital solutions. They want the transition to clean energy to happen faster. Uh, and we, we need to do it for them. And we need to feel the urgency to make it happen. And whatever it is that's standing in the way, whether it's a technology hurdle, an accounting hurdle, a regulatory or policy hurdle, 
uh, business model hurdle, it, it behooves us to sit down and solve these issues and work together to make that happen. And there are enough great examples of that happening in the world for us to emulate. You know, it's it's really encouraging, and I think the point that you make about millennials is uh, is is spot on. I mean, it's certainly a generation that's got much more of a a focus on on doing well by doing good, and and this uh, this generational shift, I think, is you know we'll see some. Ex- I'm I'm very optimistic about the acceleration of of this of this transition. Um, you know, how do you see the market evolving over the next decade? If you were uh, uh, kind of put on your 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 futurist goggles. Um, you know what what kind of can you could you paint a, a picture or a scenario of of what life will be like? Uh, in, you know in in the energy world uh, a decade out if, as as these forces you know continue to unfold and and the technologies that you're you're developing uh, really start to to reach full fruition. Certainly, uh, it's very, very dangerous to try to predict the future. But I, 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 I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to hold you to it. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, you know, you, no, uh, you know. Certainly, you're not. Uh, you know, we, 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 we won't be. Uh, well, we could check back in a decade and see how see how well things <laughs> things things turn out. <laughs> Well, the one thing that I can guarantee is that my predictions will be wrong, but that doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile exercise to make predictions, so let me go ahead and try to do that. So one thing, let me just throw out a bunch of things that I think are going to change, and then I'll try to pull them together, Ed, into a system kind of view. Uh, One thing that's going to change is that uh, wind and solar energy are going to continue on their cost curve, and absolutely everywhere in the world they will be the cheapest form of energy, least expensive and uh, therefore economics makes a giant sucking sound and nobody will build these coal plants anymore. Uh, Secondly, offshore wind, which today is more like $50 per megawatt hour, uh, is going to come down in cost because of both technology and uh, better construction practices. So uh, the turbines are getting bigger and once we're able to have floating turbines, they could be installed pretty much anywhere on two-thirds of this planet, provided you have some wiring back to shore. And uh, I think the cost curve there is going to be steep and provide us with tremendous amounts of electricity along the seaboards of uh, many countries. And in the United States, of course, we're blessed with a shallow continental shelf all the way across the eastern seaboard. Uh, So that's something that will take off. Um, Thirdly, um, we will have very clearly an electrification of transportation that is now in its infancy, but you see all of the announcements by auto manufacturers, by various countries, uh, this is inevitable. And um, um, uh, as we do so, uh, we, we have an additional source of flexibility in our demand because uh, you don't have to charge a car as soon as it gets plugged in. It could be charged any time in the middle of the night, for example, or in the middle of the day while you're at work. Uh, next, we're going to see tremendous adoption of heat pumps. 
They are uh, four times more efficient than a traditional furnace, and so all of our heating and cooling will move to heat pumps, thereby giving us another degree of flexibility in our loads. Uh, we are going to see um, um, a tremendous uh, increase in efficiency, uh, the amount of energy that we waste today uh, and uh, the amount of assets that we put in the ground and the low utilization we get from it, these will improve uh, dramatically going forward. Uh, we are all going to have energy apps on our phones that uh, determine how our thermostats work and determine when our cars get charged and whether we are willing to pay a higher price and get the ultimate comfort or we're willing to make a one degree sacrifice in comfort that you can hardly feel, but that gives the utility tremendous amounts of flexibility to balance the grid and whether uh, we allow uh, a peek into our calendar to determine how much we're going to drive the next day and, and optimize the amount of charging of our cars that happens overnight if there's a peak uh, usage that night and so on. We will all be completely at peace with uh, these kinds of apps. There are those who will uh, want to fiddle with it more and there are those who will just pick a setting and let it be. Um, and uh, most importantly, we've got uh, a carbon curve. Uh, we're trying to limit to 2 degrees centigrade, that's the Paris Accord. Uh, we're trying to see at what parts per million we can stop that increase and get the curve to bend over. Um, and um, I want to see in, in my lifetime uh, enough progress that that curve stops moving upwards. And are we going to get there? I don't know. But the energy landscape will be unrecognizable 10 years from now uh, because of uh, all the things I've said. So a lot of emphasis on electrification, a lot of emphasis on efficiency, uh, much better business models in terms of use of energy versus use of the grid, and a much, much higher level of digitization. It's really... It just stunning how much change is uh, is is possible and and uh, stands right in in front of us. Uh, my, in my conversation with Tony Siva, he did put a stake in the ground and and say that 2021 is going to be be the year where we start to see. Uh, transportation as a service based on electric vehicles really hit an inflection point. So uh, he's been he's been pretty spot on for the last several years in his in his cost curve. So I'm pretty optimistic about that. But I, I think you and I are are very much on the same page uh, in terms of our our views of where the where the market's going. But there are still some skeptics out there, and a lot of a lot of folks who just uh, you know don't you know don't don't really see beyond. On the existing uh, modes of uh, gas extraction and and uh, you know oil and uh, really the the you know there are, there are a lot of skeptics that have some yeah, don't, not argue that that there are valid objections but you know what do you think you know when you hear skeptics you know what do you think uh, people may be missing uh, when they when they don't. Uh, if if they don't fully appreciate this, that the magnitude of this transformation that's that's ahead of us. 
Yeah, so I think renewables will do to gas what gas did to solar and wind. Uh, I mean, in some, I'm sorry, what gas did to coal. So renewable will do to gas what gas did to coal. Uh, basically, economics will, will make it uh, a thing of the past. Um, when it comes to methane gas, uh, Ed, we, we need to be very careful to quantify its greenhouse gas emission, you know, total impact. Uh, so if you burn methane, it uh, emits about a third of the CO2 as coal for the same amount of energy, which is great. And therefore, a lot of people call it a clean fuel. However, if you allow methane to escape unburned, then, depending on the time period, if you pick a period of 20 years, it has more than 80 times the badness of CO2 in terms of a heat-trapping index. Therefore, it takes very little leakage in the methane gas system for it to actually nullify the environmental benefits of a clean-burning fuel. So, unless we're able to tremendously tighten up uh, our gas supply systems in terms of leakage, uh, it's not really giving us the kind of environmental progress that we're looking for. Uh, and of course, it brings about concerns about the water table and uh, so on that you're well aware of. So I think gas is a, is a temporary solution. It's a bridge solution to a fully zero carbon future. Uh, and we're going to have to get there. And um, um, it, it, to, to, to me, at the end of the day, uh, we're going to flick a light switch and the light's going to come on. Our houses are going to be comfortable. And if, if we can achieve that uh, with clean energy, it will be one of the technological marvels uh, of, of uh, recent times. And um, from everything I see, I'm extremely bullish and optimistic that we will get there. Well, and, and, and not only are there uh, ramifications for the environment, but also ramifications for uh, emerging economies and, and uh, even, even ge the, the balance of power in geopolitics. I mean, if you have these extractive economies that are based on pulling non-renewable resources out of the ground, uh, the, the, the reduction of reliance uh, you know, on those industries in favor of you know, empowering decentralized generation and consumption of energy, where essentially anybody who has either sun or wind is able to, to benefit from these technology advancements, I, I, I think it's, 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 it's transformative for you know, uh, really for the for the for the for the for all of humanity and that's uh it really is is why i'm so excited about it and of course you've uh you've walked the walk and 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 built the built the zero carbon house so you know with your uh with your own hands what it takes to to achieve this and and you're accomplishing this as well at at uh, utopus insights with the the work that you do and i i didn't mention the 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 rest of the team i've had a chance to to meet with the the rest of the people on your team and you've got some some of the smartest people i think i've ever met in uh in in weather analytics and energy analytics so you you're really making it happen so uh, you know i i can't i can't thank you enough for for taking the time to uh you know to share your thoughts with me shandu 
I do have one final question, which I always like to ask, which is uh, uh, if, if you have a, a, a book or resource recommendation that you could share with, with our listeners that uh, would be something that, that you would share to, to anybody, a colleague, that you think would be, uh, be valuable. Absolutely, Ed. Before I get there, well, let me just riff off of something you just said. I, I am so proud of our team that we have assembled here. And in fact, it's now a larger team with our partnership with Vestas. Uh, they are a company that's not only committed to renewable energy and bringing it to the world, uh, but, but they are also committed to the digitization vision that we discussed. And uh, uh, it's, that vi it's that vision and that wisdom that uh, caused all of this partnership to happen. Uh, and, I, and I think the two together can achieve some amazing things. Uh, in terms of resources, I'd like to point out um, a couple of books that I read recently that I think uh, would be very, very interesting to your listeners. Uh, the first one is just a really entertaining book called The Last Days of Night. And it's by Graham Moore, and it's a really fascinating retelling of the legal battles between Edison and Westinghouse with uh, Nikola Tesla playing a very key role uh, at the turn of the century, I, I mean at the end of the 1800s. And uh, it's really a fascinating book about the dawn of electricity. Uh, one other that I'll recommend is that um, I'm, I'm an unlikely entrepreneur. I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur in my life. Uh, I have a scientific background. And uh, when I was thrust into this position of running a startup, um, I felt like I had to educate myself and I got my hands on uh, lots of different books and courses and so on to try to learn uh, how to do this better. Um, to a large extent, it's, it's, it's common sense, I suppose, but one book I particularly enjoyed is called uh, Scaling Up, How a Few Companies Make It and Why the Rest Don't by Vern Harnish, and he talks very much about how to design a business for scale from the ground up. So those would be my uh, two choices for your listeners, and I hope they enjoy them. Those are terrific. In fact, I don't, I don't have either of those, so they'll be there. Those, those get added to my list of books to read. So, um, so with that, we're we're going to wrap things up. Uh, and and again, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta. Um, many thanks to uh, Chandu Viswaswaria of Utopus Insights, uh, which is now part of Vestas. Uh, it's been a great conversation, and uh, you know, I, I look forward to, to, to following up and, and, and seeing uh, all the innovations that, that you guys are bringing to market. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much, Ed. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.